Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 69 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. Today I have the pleasure to talk with Jimmy's mom, Margot. There are many similarities between Margot and I. Certainly the most obvious is the fact that we are both grieving mothers, but it goes a little beyond that. When Margot was going through her grief journey after losing her son, Jimmy, and shortly after that, her mother, she too began looking online for resources to help her with her grief. And she too found it to be lacking and found that there just wasn't exactly what she was looking for. So at the encouragement of friends, she started her own website and really group, kind of a virtual support group before we had to go virtual. She founded Saltwater. One thing that I love about Saltwater is at the top of their Twitter page, she has a picture of a harbor and a lighthouse. And there is a quote there listed from Isaac Denison. And the quote says, the cure for anything is salt water, sweat, tears, or the sea. And I think that is just a beautiful thing to think about those being ways to help and ways to kind of cure anything. And that salt water can really just act like tears Today you get to hear Margot's story and a little bit about her son Jimmy, who died of cancer at 21 years of age. She'll go on to talk a little bit too about saltwater and what she hopes to accomplish through findyourharbor.com. you so much, Margot, for agreeing to come on the show today. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. Oh, I'm really looking forward to talking to you too, Marcy. I've, I've listened to a number of your episodes and I so enjoy the conversations you have. Well, I was telling you before we started recording that you wrote to me just a short time ago and you started introducing yourself and your website and things. And I was like, well, I know you. You don't need to say all of this because I've been following you on Twitter for probably a year. So I knew exactly who you were and a little bit about you. And I think you were surprised to hear that, weren't you? <laughs> I was. I was. And flattered. It was really lovely to get your note back saying, no, no, I don't need all this that you sent me. I know who you are. <laughs> I know exactly who you are. So, But our audience probably does not know who you are. Some of them may, but uh, if not, why don't you start out by telling people who you are and then talking about your son, Jimmy. Okay. So I am, I am a, like all of us, I'm a number of things. You know, I'm a mom, I'm a wife, um, I'm a consultant, I'm a, I'm a blogger and a writer now, which is something that I wouldn't have said a few years ago. But m- my greatest role has, is the mom of two kids, my son Jimmy and my daughter Molly. And my son Jimmy uh, was diagnosed, gosh, I lose track of time, 14, almost 15 years ago now with brain cancer. And that's what launched me in, into this world that you and I now both belong to. But my son, Jimmy, was just the most amazing kid. The thing that I remember most about him was how cheerful he always was and how readily he would smile. Um, One of my favorite memories when he was a toddler, which I think just sort of captures who he was, 
is I could hear him from downstairs on the baby monitor that he had woken up and I could hear the telltale sounds of him jumping up and down in his crib. Mm -hmm. And so I went up to get him and he was sure enough, he was bouncing up and down on his crib. And he looked up at me when I walked in the room and he said, I happy boy, mama, I happy boy. And that, that was Jimmy. I mean, he just, he was like Tigger in a way. I mean, not so much the actual bouncing as he got older, but he just had that, that personality where he, he focused on what was good in his life. And I think that really carried him well through the eight years that he, that he battled cancer because yes. it kept his spirits up, but it kept our spirits up too. Because mm -hmm. we really took our lead from him. And I was just talking to somebody about this recently, about what a blessing that was. Because I know for yeah. so many families, when a child is ill, they of course are struggling and they often get depressed or sad. And as a parent, it breaks your heart and you, you know, you want to do something to help them. And I, I didn't really think about it at the time, but, but we didn't have that experience with Jimmy, which I, I think is kind of remarkable. Yeah, it was like it was meant to be that he had that sort of outlook on life with the struggles that he ended up having. I mean, that was, was what a blessing. What a blessing. Yeah, it really was a gift. And one that I just, I, it sounds sort of crazy, but, you know, here we are seven, almost seven years on and I'm only now realizing what a gift it was. Mm -hmm. So why don't you talk about Jimmy's diagnosis and kind of how that came about and a little bit about his journey? So it actually started on Christmas Eve in 2005. Not that we knew that what it was a sign of. We were watching A Christmas Story, which I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's mm -hmm. a very funny, silly movie about Ralphie and the Red Rider BB gun that he wants. And it was our tradition to watch it together as a family. And we paused it for a minute and he got up from the couch and said, I don't feel well and wound up throwing up in the bathroom. And then he was fine. And so we thought, okay, he's eaten too much. He's got a sure. little food poisoning, you know, whatever it is. And a couple of days later, our family got on a plane and went to Hawaii for a week. And during the course of that time, he, he kept having these strange incidents where he would throw up and then he would immediately feel better. And the headache that he had would go away and the nausea would go away, but it was intermittent. And once we got back to Portland, where we lived at the time, it started getting more consistent. And I had been in touch with the pediatrician who said, you know, you should bring him in. I don't think it's anything to be worried about, but let's take a look mm -hmm. at him. And we wind up, wound up having to see the on-call uh, pediatrician because our pediatrician was on vacation. And he was pretty dismissive. He just said, I think this is teenage onset migraine. And I said, well, you know, I looked that up on the internet and it manifests like this. And Jimmy's pain is really more in the front of his head. And he actually looked at me and said, this is why we shouldn't let you mothers on the internet. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, well, you are the doctor. And we took him back a second time because it was getting worse. And in the interim, he talked to a friend of his who was a pediatric neurosurgeon in town. And she said, get an MRI. So we got the MRI just to rule anything out. And of course, that was how we discovered that he had a brain tumor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this is over a course of just a couple of months or something or not even that long. Even? I think it was about three weeks that it uh, took. Yeah. And as I understand it from talking to other parents whose kids have had similar tumors, we were lucky that we found it this quickly because there are some mm -hmm. of them that go two, three months before someone finally says, let's do a CT or let's do an MRI. And they tend to sort of poo poo it a little bit, you know, not poo poo it, but, but look at it as it's not this, the thing that you'd be most frightened of, that it's got to be something else. And mm -hmm. it takes them a while to order that scan. Yeah, I know I had a patient, it, it was a patient of mine. But again, a partner of mine saw the patient and she was worried, actually, that he had 
meningitis, that there was something wrong with his neck and how he was and sent him in to get scanned on the neck. And the person that was doing the CT scan said, well, he was, you know, a toddler. And so she was like, he's going to wiggle. I'm going to just go up a little higher. So she just decided to go up a little bit higher than she should. And we caught the edge of that tumor and then ended up doing the scan. And so certainly he wouldn't have been caught quite as early as he was either, except for that, for the fact that they did a little bit the wrong test. And fortunately for that family, he has done well. They were able to do surgery and and the reason I wasn't seeing him is because I was rounding on patients in the hospital that day. So that worked out for the best, too, because they sent him straight to the hospital. And then I met them at the hospital. And, you know, mom and I hugged and cried and, and everything. And he's doing well. But it is interesting that you say that because it is sometimes ends up being weird circumstances on why you find something or if you don't find something right away. Exactly. Well, and as you know, from being a pediatrician, oftentimes the way they catch it is there's some change in the eyes, you know, that there mm-hmm. either there's a vision impairment or there's some, you know, eye crossing or some, just something or some balance issues. Jimmy had yeah. none of that, which mm-hmm. is partly, you know, in defense of that pediatrician is partly why he, he didn't go there immediately. And I think had he not talked to this neurosurgeon, and had her encourage him to do the scan, I think it would have been another couple of weeks. And not because he was doing anything wrong, but just to your point, it, that's not what it looked like. Right, right. You have to always think about the most common things, and it isn't the most common thing. It's certainly right. common amongst cancers, but cancers aren't that common in kids. So, uh so anyway, that starts his journey down this path. And it sounds like he battled his cancer for quite some time. He did. And and it's going to sound strange to say this, but we were lucky in a way how long he, he lived with his cancer. Because he when he was diagnosed, he had a single tumor that was removed. And at the time, there was no sign of metastases, no, no cells in the spinal fluid. And we thought that he was going to be what's considered a standard risk kid with medulloblastoma and that he would go through this year long treatment and then he would be cancer free and, and that would be it. And for the first year after he finished, that's, that's what it looked like. And then a year after he finished treatment on one of his quarterly scans, they found growth at the top of his head and the cancer, Mm -hmm. he basically recurred. And most kids who have a recurrence of that type of cancer, are, are often dead in three to six months. And Jimmy lived another six years. Wow. And so he had some very unusual variant of it where it was quite slow growing for a number of years. And so we were able to really keep it in check without, you know, he had some harsh treatments, but he was also on a low dose chemo drug for a long time that didn't really affect him that much. And he was able okay. to, you know, stay in, he, well, he stayed in school all the way through, but he was able to go to two and a half years of college, for example, and live on his own in a dorm and, and have that whole experience, which I'm, oh. I'm forever grateful for because it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's something that not all kids with his kind of cancer get is that much time mm-hmm. when it comes back. So did you know that whole six years though, that it was eventually going to be terminal or did he have some periods of time that it seemed like he was in permanent remission? When he first recurred, there was still one treatment option that looked like it had the possibility of curing him. And that was doing four or five, four or five rounds of high, of pretty intense chemotherapy followed by a stem cell, um, high dose chemo and a stem cell rescue. And it was quite brutal to go through these rounds of chemotherapy mm-hmm. and the and the stem cell rescue, as you well know. But mm-hmm. we thought that that could potentially cure him. And f- again, for a time, that it looked like we had gotten it all. There was nothing lighting up on the scan. And then there was just one spot. It came back. Uh. 
And so at that point, we put him on this, on these low dose chemo drugs. And if necessary, when there, another spot would occur, he'd have a little bit of targeted radiation. And so he had about, I think it was about three years of that, maybe even four, where he was able to just, you know, take this pill regimen, but continue on where it looked like we either were going to be able to cure him initially, or at least where he was going to be able to live with it. And in mm -hmm. fact, he was so unusual. His doctor, Dr. Nicholson, started calling him Jimmy Folk's data set of one because he'd never seen yeah. a kid that was able to do this. But he said, you know, it looks like Jimmy can just live with this cancer, which is unheard of for medulloblastoma. But he did it for quite a number of years. And then about a year before he died, it went into... Actually, no, that's not right. Two years before he died, it went down into his spine. And at that point, mm -hmm. I knew we were really battling to see how long we could, yeah. we would be able to keep him alive unless there was some drug or trial that emerged that would, you know, allow us to change that outcome. And, and nothing did during that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you said he was able to graduate from high school and go to college. And mm -hmm. how was that? Was that hard for you to send him away for that or not so much? No, it wasn't. And it would have been had he not gone through what he'd gone through. I would have been so sad to see him leave the nest. But it was such a triumph to mm -hmm. see him go. In part because when he was first diagnosed, the same pediatric neurosurgeon who told the pediatrician to get the scan was the one who operated on him. And she was fantastic. She was an amazing surgeon. And so we were, we were then assigned at that hospital to a to the oncologist who was there sure. and it, her bedside manner left something to be desired, let's say. And she, for some reason, I don't know if it's because we were so devastated about the magnitude of the initial treatment, if we were both just crying so much that it, I, I don't know what she thought, but she, she somehow seemed to have the impression that we were reluctant to treat Jimmy, which was not the case. And so she took on this pretty forceful approach to us. And at one point she said, listen, by the time I'm done with Jimmy, he's going to be living at home with you for the rest of your life, rest of his life. And my husband said, but Jimmy has dreams. Jimmy wants to go to college. And she said, oh, she said, college is off the table. He's going to be lucky to graduate from high school. And at the time, I mean, you can imagine as a mom, we're just still, this is, you know, four or five days after his surgery, we're still trying to grapple with the notion that he, our child has a brain tumor and that he needs sure. to have radiation and chemotherapy. But it turned out to be a gift because it was, this, it was the incident where the two of us looked at each other and said, there has got to be a better option than this. Even mm -hmm. if the outcome is the same, there has to be a better choice. And what we discovered is a, at the other pediatric hospital in town, there was this amazing doctor, Dr. Nicholson, who was also an expert in Jimmy's kind of tumor. And mm -hmm. so we moved him there. And Dr. Nicholson's attitude was nothing is off the table. You know, yeah, Jimmy may have some long-term effects from this, but the mm -hmm. idea is he should stay in school if he feels well enough to go. And he should continue to work towards going, college, going to college. Of course he should do that. Mm -hmm. And so when he got accepted, he applied to Stanford. That was his dream school because both Dan and I went there. And when he got accepted, that was just the most amazing experience. I can see him standing in my home office on the phone calling his grandparents to tell him that he had been accepted. And so it wow. was just, it was just a blessing and a gift to drop him off at college, to know how hard he'd worked to be there. And what a triumph it was for him to be able to go. Absolutely. I can totally see that now. Mm -hmm. And of course, I was terrified at the same time because he was on, you know, his low-dose protocol and he had to manage his pills. And <laughs> yeah. so I worried about a lot of things. But I, but I was really grateful that he got to have the experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then that was during Stanford is when he started to get sicker and was at some point unable to 
continue to go then? Yes, because what happened is then the, the summer after his sophomore year was when the cancer suddenly just became very aggressive and went down his spine. And we had to switch to, I can't remember now, I think they were monthly chemotherapy infusions. And so he would come back to school. I would drop him off afterwards and he would just feel lousy. And he did that for two quarters, but he called during winter quarter of his junior year and just said, mom, I, I just can't keep doing this. I need to come home for a while. And so Mm -hmm. he came home for spring quarter of his junior year and then, and then stayed home from then on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So tell me about kind of the end with Jimmy and how he passed and how things were for you and your family at that time. So Jimmy died at home, which Mm -hmm. was, which was a a gift to be able to do that. By that point, we had also put him in the care of an amazing doctor at UCSF because we had moved down here as well to be close to California to be closer to him. And so Dr. Nicholson was still in charge, but he was in Portland. So we had a local doctor and we also had a a nurse practitioner named Shannon who was overseeing Mm -hmm. Jimmy's care. And when Jimmy's scan looked really bad in November of 2013, she pulled me aside and said, I think we should engage home health because that way Jimmy can do his blood draws at home. If he needs anything like fluids, you know, we can, he can just get them at home. And she said, we don't have to use the word hospice right now, but it will allow him to get comfortable with the nurse and the social worker. And then we may never have to use that term, even though, you know, we'll tell him what's happening, but it's, Mm-hmm. It enables him to just have this sort of fluidity with the the team. And yeah. so we started there. And I knew at that point, looking at that scan, even before she said anything, that we had, we were losing the battle. I didn't know what, I mean, it's hard to know what the timing is anyway. I didn't know what the timing was, but I knew in my gut that that was the case. We did not at that point say anything to Jimmy. I'm not even sure that my husband and I talked about it. I think we just kind of, pers- you know, we kept going. We had a few other things to try, which we did that weren't successful in, in beating the cancer back. And then he had another scan in January of, of 2014 where everything was worse and he was symptomatic. He was getting more and more issues with with vision and, and numbness in his legs mm. and things like that. And Shannon again pulled me aside and said, you have to tell him that he's yeah. dying. Because she said, otherwise, you will rob him of the ability to do what he wants for whatever time is left. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I can still remember sitting there talking to her with everything inside of me screaming, no, I cannot do this. I cannot do this to this. You know, I can't tell him. But I knew she was right. And so I kept putting it off. And then mm-hmm. one night he asked me a question about he was catheterized at that point. And he said something about the catheter and he asked me about when it was going to come out. And I, and I, there was something in my face because he looked at me and he said, it isn't coming out, is it? And I said, no. And we had the conversation and it was, I mean, it was horrible as you can imagine Yeah, yeah. to have to, to, to tell him. And on the other, on, and on the other hand, Shannon was absolutely right because When I said to Jimmy, what do you want to do now? Who do you want to see? He said, I'm going to make a list. And he gave me a list of names of people that he wanted to see. And Dan and I got in touch with every one of them. And every one of them came to see him over the next couple of weeks, which was Mm -hmm. amazing. And had Shannon not pushed me in that very loving but firm way, that would never have happened. Are you glad that you were the one to have the conversation with him or would you have rather had the doctors and Shannon have a conversation with him with you present? I'm just asking out of curiosity more almost as a physician more because it, it seems like a lot of pressure to put on a parent 
to do it. I don't disagree with you. I think that Shannon, though, was saying that knowing the two of us as well as she did and how mm -hmm. much time we spent together. So Jimmy, for example, did two rounds of six, six weeks each of daily radiation at UCSF over three or four months as we were trying mm -hmm. to control the, the cancer again. And so we spent so much time together. And a lot of those late night talks where, you know, the light would be out and then from the, you know, the bed would come the little voice saying, mom, and then yeah. he would, you know, start asking me questions or want to talk about something. So it felt like it needed to be me. It didn't bother mm -hmm. me that, that, that she was saying that. And I, and my reaction to it wasn't, I don't want to be the one to tell him it was the not wanting to tell him period mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. about it I'm just asking a couple reasons one if, if people that listened to me talk in the past know that when I was 21 years old and my mom was dying of cancer I ended up having to be the one to tell her oh, because wow. they didn't no one told her and instead it was just a nurse pulling me out in the room and saying you shouldn't be alone you here don't you know that she could die anytime and we didn't we didn't have any idea that she was that close to death and so then you know my mom said to me I'm dying aren't I when mm -hmm. I went back with tears and I had to say yes and I felt like that's a lot and I didn't know if it was only because you know I was 21 I was young to have to do that because I, I felt like it was not handled in the right way. And then interestingly enough, I've recently talked with Tom, Kevin's dad. He was on the Thanksgiving episode. And he, interestingly, too, he went to UCSF. They, they were, had cancer treatments at the same place. And Kevin was told by the team, not by the dad. And then that, I think, was not wise in that then Kevin was angry with his parents in some ways saying they'd been holding stuff back because they had known and he had not and so I just wonder what the best way is right I mean there just seems like it's a lot to put on the family but yeah I think the family should be involved because that was probably not right to just pull Kevin aside and tell him without his parents there but yet it was a lot of pressure to put on you so I don't know. There's probably no right way what's what it comes down to. No, and I suspect it really comes down to the family, you know, and the mm -hmm. relationship with the family. And I, I do have, have friends and other people I've met through Saltwater where they couldn't bring themselves to tell the child, for example, that the child was mm -hmm. dying. And, mm -hmm. and that was the right choice for them and their family, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, it, and they have misgivings about it, but at the same time, you know, I think we all just sort of do the best we can. And I can also imagine some parents wanting the team to be the yeah. one to, to provide that news. Because mm -hmm. it is, it's really difficult as a parent. And, mm -hmm. you know, and again, we were, you know, we were in Sacramento too, and, and UCSF is in San Francisco. So it's a two hour right. drive for us. So that was part of it too, was that it wasn't, we weren't at that point going in all the time. Where right. maybe it was I a wouldn't. phone conversation was a phone yeah. conversation with her yeah and so that changes things a lot I think to when because they just don't want to put it off until what would be a next visit which you don't know if there's going to be a next visit right yeah yeah exactly because it is something that you certainly wouldn't want to tell the the child even if he's kind of not really a child anymore and is away at college and things you don't want to tell him um over the phone <laughs> Oh, no, no. And I was right. Exactly. And, you know, by that yeah. point, Jimmy was home, but it's still. Yeah. Yeah. It, it yeah. you know, and again, if we'd been going in a lot, I might have made a different choice and asked Shannon to do it with me more, mm -hmm. not so much because I wouldn't have wanted to be the one saying the words, but I would have needed the moral. I would have chosen the moral support of having sure. her there. Sure. Because it's a hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, I know it's an impossibly hard thing to do. So Right, exactly. So talk about your grief journey afterwards and tell people about Saltwater and what you've done because I think it's pretty amazing. Oh, well, thank you. So 
after Jimmy died, I actually then had a second loss, which was my mom. Mm -hmm. When she was flying back from Jimmy's celebration of life, which we held up in Portland, she developed a big hematoma because she had a blood disorder. And that was basically the beginning of a year-long decline, which led to her passing away about a year after Jimmy did. And then that next period of time was taken up by being the trustee of, of her will and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. possessions. And so it was a time when I really only had the bandwidth between caring for her and then executing on the trust to just look for resources on the internet. And Mm -hmm. what I found largely was that as you discovered and then jumped into the, to the podcast world, there, there are really no podcasts for parents who are grieving. There are episodes on different podcasts about Mm -hmm. it, but there isn't one dedicated to that. And I found that a lot of the, the websites for parents in particular, there's a lot of talk about, or about religious aspects of loss. So there's mm-hmm. an a, there's an attempt to provide comfort, which I think for some people it is comforting to say things like, you know, your your child is in heaven, you'll see them again, things that mm-hmm. that aren't part of what I happen to believe in or wasn't raised with. And so that had less of an appeal to me. I come from a Christian background and really value that. I go to a Christian support group. I have Christian friends. And without my faith, I don't know where I'd be. But I too have to say, when you're in the depths of pain and having those dark days, someone saying to you, well, he's in a better place now, is just not helpful. It's not. And when I'm having a really dark day, and someone from the outside says, well, God needed him in heaven, or Andy's soul was too good for this place. I just think, I don't care. Right. I want him here. So it, in some ways, that ends up not being as helpful, even though people think they're being really helpful by saying those things, that that will somehow comfort you. Instead, it makes me now feel guilty that on top of me really missing my son and feeling horrible about that loss, now I'm somehow a really crappy Christian or something too. So you might think that that would be just really wonderful, but in many respects, it ends up not being wonderful, you know? Oh, that's so interesting, Marcy. I didn't think about that because, again, I don't come from that background. Mm-hmm. So that but, but makes complete sense to me that it that there is almost a message, I guess, underlying it that like somehow you shouldn't be sad. OK, mm-hmm. right, because they're in this this better place and you will see them again yep. after a period mm-hmm. of time. So you shouldn't really be sad. Well, and mm. and that's just just feels like garbage to me because I'm am really sad and it isn't helpful. So that's one thing that I do talk about a lot that sometimes those kind of comments are just not comforting. And I've talked to a lot of people from a lot of different faith backgrounds or not faith backgrounds and no one finds those comments really that comforting, really. So Oh, that's good to know that it wasn't just it is not spiritual, just you. not organized religion me. Nope, nope, it's not. I've talked to many Christians. I've talked to people who are Jewish. I've talked to people who are Muslim. It, and there is some level of of like, I will see them again and, and that is good. But it's not overall comforting to you at the moment in your depths because it doesn't make tomorrow any better. Tomorrow is just as hard. Just because way down the road, things might be okay, it doesn't make that day-to-day life better, even though people think that it would, you know? So anyway, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> just- yeah, no, that made, that makes sense. Yeah, so that was one portion of what I found. I tried one or two atheist websites that I found, and that didn't work for me either because... I do have my own set of spiritual beliefs and I've got Jewish background. And so I have this sort of funky version of what I believe that didn't fit with atheism. Mm-hmm. 
so I, I couldn't really find my spot that way. And then the other thing was because I was grieving these two huge significant losses, I found that that there's there's also a lot of ranking in grief. Mm-hmm. You know, where I don't know if you've seen this, where you know children are are by and large acknowledged to be the worst loss because their age and and how much of life is robbed of them. But there's this weird sort of what I call the grief Olympics that goes on, right? Where, you know, kids are worse than parents and and siblings are worse than grandparents. I mean, it's just this kind of weird thing. And then if you lose a pet and you're devastated about your dog dying, people will make really insulting comments sometimes about, well, it's not a human or you can get another one. And none of that felt good to me. And so eventually one of my friends said, I think you just need to do this yourself. I think you need to create what you can't find. Mm -hmm. And so that was where I got the idea to create saltwater. And for me, I wanted something that covered more than one kind of loss because I'd had multiple losses. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I didn't focus it just on child loss. And that is definitely true. And I feel like even in child loss, there tends to be a hierarchy. You have people like, well, you lost your child when they were 45. That's different than losing your teenager or losing your toddler or something. And then you have, on the other hand, too, the infant loss, I feel like, is often belittled as well. Somehow, like, you can just get pregnant again and replace them or something, which is just a ridiculous thing to say to someone. You know, oh, you're young, you can have another one. Like... That's just, that's a horrible thing to say. I can't imagine much worse, really. So, yeah. So I think there are hierarchies all over the place. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. And I think that, you know, my mom passing away was a really good life lesson for me about that. Because when you look at it as an outsider, my mom was 92. So, yes, she'd had a long, full life. But. We, it was a year past the death of her grandson. I'm her only child. She didn't want to leave me in grief and pain like that. And both her husband, my dad, and her mom lived to be 102. So from her perspective, she wasn't ready to go yet for a lot of different reasons. Mm-hmm. And so it was a really devastating loss for me. In, in, it would have been at any time, but particularly because of having lost Jimmy a year earlier. And people who didn't know me well sent really lovely cards, well-meaning cards, saying things like, it's so wonderful that she had such a long, full life. And I thought, you know, context is really important. And in my case, I, you know, I wasn't upset about that because I understood why people Mm -hmm. you know, who didn't know me would say that. And you need something to say when you don't know the person. So again, it wasn't like I got upset, but it really was the beginning of my education about exactly what you were saying, that, that context is so important about loss because you can be raised by a grandparent and be absolutely devastated when they die. And to the outside world, you've lost a 90-year-old grandparent. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what happens. It's a circle of life. And sure, it's sad, but, you know, you've got your mom and dad and you've got whatever. And and people don't always know the circumstance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what do you do with saltwater? Tell us about it. So saltwater has a couple components to it. Mm-hmm. It it has the blog. I write most of the blog posts myself, but about a third of them are written by other people. And that was deliberate and intentional from the beginning because I write about my own kinds of losses. I want voices who've had other kinds of losses that I haven't, Mm -hmm. but even different perspectives on the same loss, because I'm not arrogant enough to think that whatever I say about child loss speaks to everyone. Mm -hmm. I think you need people that have different experiences, different kinds of loss that are in different places Mm -hmm. with with their losses as well. I'm totally with you on that. I I do that. I try to be pretty careful about that and trying to get many different perspectives. Like I said, I have had people from all sorts of different backgrounds with all sorts of different losses because I feel like we have so much that we can learn from each other and people that I normally wouldn't be able to hear from and talk to that are completely different than me have so much to offer. I just 
it's so valuable. Exactly. Exactly. And as one of my friends said to me recently, you know, I needed people that were out a little bit ahead of me or a mm-hmm. lot ahead of me, mm-hmm. kind of shining the light saying, you can do this. She said, I needed people that were right there with me mm-hmm. around, you know, same kind of time frame. And she said, and as I got a couple years out, I needed people behind me so that I could reach back and help them mm-hmm. the way other people helped me. And it kind of marked the fact that I was still standing and still living on and moving forward. And I, I think that's really true. So, yeah, so I really wanted that that kind of broad range of, of voices mm-hmm. on the blog. In addition, Saltwater also has resources for all the sort of major kinds of loss that we've touched on, spouse, sibling, child, parent, friend, pet loss. I also have pages of resource on dementia, a drug overdose, and suicide because of sadly of how common they are. Mm-hmm. And then on both Facebook and Instagram, there, there are good-sized communities there where people will connect with each other or sometimes get in touch with me and say, you know, I've lost my only child and I don't know anyone who's lost an only child. Can you connect me Mm -hmm. to some other parents in the same situation? And I will do that as well. Cause I think as you found, there's nothing like talking to another parent who Mm -hmm. has experienced a similar kind of loss Mm -hmm. because you just feel like you're sort of going crazy sometimes, I think otherwise. There's no question about it. And it's funny how you talked about how you need people that are walked the path ahead of you and that are with you and that are behind you. Because I think about three women that I have in my life who are very special to me. Now, my my friend Stephanie, Kian's mom, who is almost exactly a year ahead of me. My friend Megan, who is Willow's mom, whose daughter died two days before Andy. So she's exactly with me. And then my friend Chrissy, who I met just by doing the podcast because she started listening after her son died almost exactly a year to the day after Andy. And those three women are so precious to me because I look to Stephanie and see where to go. And I look to Megan to see if I'm kind of in an okay spot because we're exactly the same as far as that goes. And then... Chrissy reaches out to me now quite often when she's having a bad day or having something and I can feel like I have a little something to give to her. I have that I am exactly a year ahead of you and this is what I'm doing and this is what I can offer you like today. So it is unbelievable I think how those three things are important and I have people in all categories multiple people in all categories those are just the three women that come directly to my mind and how that is so precious and I really would hope that everyone can start getting different people that they can put in those different categories to be able to kind of walk that journey with them because it's just invaluable Really? Oh, absolutely. And then you have these markers, if you will, that you don't even think about or know about. Like I think about two of my friends that I've made through Saltwater whose children have now been dead longer than they've been alive. Mm -hmm. And they, they both wrote about that. And it was so, it didn't even occur to me, right? Because Jimmy was 21, then he died. I've got a ways to go before I get to that point. But it's, it, that's really helpful too, because it, it prepares you, wow, that's going to be really hard when that happens. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's useful too, just, you don't so think about, about it. this. It's so unexpected. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I know when I hit a year and a half, I had a day on the year and a half day, I was bad. I was just bad, just in tears, alone, in the dark, crying. And I reached out to my friend Stephanie, who is, you know, was two and a half. And it was so helpful to me to realize that she had a really hard time at a year and a half too. 
she found herself crying on the bathroom floor at a year and a half because somehow no one remembers, obviously. A year and a half is not like some big sort of milestone that people are going to send you a card for 18 months. But in my mind, it was like, wow, I am halfway through the second year. This is unbelievable to me how tough that was. So to have someone normalize that a little bit was just huge, really. You know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And the other thing that was that I just went through just in the last couple one month and a half was the day that Peter became older than Andy was. You know, so that's another thing. And I know now Peter's taller than Andy ever was. And he weighs more than Andy ever did. And that's hard, too, when you get that suddenly your middle child is would have been your smallest now. Right. You never got to get any bigger. So that's those are things that people don't think about on the outside. I don't think. I don't think about those kind of tough things that someone from the inside can see and can know. Yeah. Well, and as you know, siblings are often called, you know, kind of the forgotten mourners because there's so much attention on us as parents. Oh, yeah. And I know when I was trying to find resources for Molly after Jimmy died, it was it was difficult to find a lot of books and articles and websites and that kind of thing for her. And, and that was something I didn't think about in advance was, you know, she's now, she's older than Jimmy was. Mm-hmm. And that was a big, that was the same kind of thing. It was a, it was a huge monumental thing for her to go through that. And she shared it and we talked about it, but I didn't know to anticipate or be ready for it. Cause I, nobody said anything to me about it. And I didn't, in my own grief, I didn't really think about that mm-hmm. at, until it was upon us. How old was Molly when Jimmy died? So Molly was 17 okay. when Jimmy died. Okay. Mm-hmm. So four years. So she was still home then. Yes. She was a junior in high school. Mm-hmm. Well, that was yeah, good. There's that four she and a half home. years between them. That was good that she was home. Oh, it was. It was. Absolutely. Because it's tough. You are right. I think they're forgotten mourners by other people. And they also tend to want to downplay their own grief a little bit because they don't want to put any more stress and strain on the parents. So they end up taking more on themselves than they should because they feel like, I don't want to stress mom out anymore. I don't want to stress dad out anymore. They're going through enough. They don't need to worry about me too. So that's a tough thing. Mm -hmm. Oh, it is. Well, and also you think about kids that are teenagers, they're pulling away at Mm -hmm. that point Mm -hmm. you know they're getting more independent and and they should be because they're preparing to finish high school and move on to college or trade school or a job or whatever comes next and so you know the grief is catching them at a point when they should be pulling away and yet they need us and there's a part of them that's fighting to get away from us in a very appropriate way and so it's it's the timing is really hard too, when it's a teenager, I think. Yeah, my daughter is going through that now because she's just a freshman in college. And, you know, I wasn't realizing how, I mean, I know she's struggling, but there was a day recently she said, oh, and she was, you know, trying to do college on her own and in the dorms and not, obviously it's with COVID, it's a mess because you don't have a roommate and you don't have, you can't really do anything and you have to just be by yourself so much. And she said, well, I found one day it was the 15th and I couldn't do anything. Well, Andy died on the 15th. And I know that for me, the 15th oftentimes had been a struggle that I would have hard days on the 15th because I would think it's been this many months, it's been this many months, but I never vocalized that to even my husband, let alone my kids. So to have her say now two and a half years later that December 15th was a hard day just because it was the 15th, like, wow, I feel like I have been doing her a disservice in some ways in not acknowledging that maybe that's a tough day for her too and not just for me and things like that. So anyway, it's tough. Yeah. 
It's like, you know, it's a hard balance. It's, our daughter's been home since March because of COVID. Mm-hmm. She was in England getting a master's degree and just called and said, look, I don't want to be in a situation where I get sick and you can't get to me or you get sick and I can't get to you. Mm-hmm. And her university had already gone online. So she wound up coming home. And we had a kind of funny experience. She and I one day when I was I was on Zoom calls and she was making dinner and my husband was, you know, going to have dinner with her and I was going to eat later. And he and I texted her at one point because I didn't hear him downstairs. And I said, have you seen dad? You know, has he come out of the of the bedroom where he's worked? His office is set up. And she said no. And I said, I know this is going to sound crazy, but can you just go check on him? Because he was supposed to have emerged from his last call like 90 minutes earlier. And she went in and checked on him and he was still on the phone and it was fine. And I told her later, I said, you know, I'm, I'm sure you thought I was just kind of crazy or neurotic, mm-hmm. but I get these weird feelings sometimes of like, is something wrong now because of what's happened to Jimmy? And she said, oh, no, mom, that happens to me, too. Mm-hmm. You know, and kind of the same experience where on the one hand, I, you know, I, I think we normalized it for each other. But on the other hand, I was thinking, well, God, if it's just me, I don't want to make her right. start worrying about everything. Right. You know, so it happened to come up in a way where it made sense to talk about it and discover we were both doing that on occasion. But it's hard to know sometimes what to bring up and whatnot. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you do feel like I'm being a little bit crazy here or whatever. And you think it's just you, but oftentimes it's not. It's not just you. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know that you are on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And then you've got a website, right? So why mm-hmm. don't you just just tell people how they can find you and how they can follow you? So I think the easiest thing is to go to the website, um, which is findyourharbor.com. Mm-hmm. And the links to all of Saltwater's social media are on the website. So, but they're also the same across social media. So it's at Find Your Harbor uh, on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter as well. Well, I think it's just a beautiful thing that you have done just to kind of normalize loss and let people kind of have a place to go where they're not feeling judged at all and can just talk about their loss no matter what it is so thank you so much for all you do that way I am again so excited that you reached out because I have been reading your things for a long time and just am so excited to be able to finally talk to you in person so thank you oh thank you well yeah it's lovely to connect with you too Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.